morning. Good morning. I have to be the rude guy who stops social hour. I'm sorry, but somebody has to make you stop saying hi. I hope everybody online saying good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, and all that. But we have to move on eventually, okay, friends? After service, you can keep dialoguing. Um, I'm Pastor Scott. If you're new to E3 Church, I'm just so privileged and just so blessed to be here. We are just... uh, First Palm Sunday here in Tallahassee, and it's marvelous. It's marvelous. Yes, yes. The weather here, perfect, perfect. We are going into the Atonement series in a moment. A few just quick announcements to kind of set the table for things upcoming that Dan did a great job setting, but y'all come in so late, okay? Just calling out some of you. But some of you (laughs) saved the drummer from peril. Thank you for coming over here. If you didn't see it online, that was awesome. Joe is just the most, the most amazing drummer. He's just going crazy and falls over. I don't think he noticed. I don't think he noticed. Awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's continue. A um, couple quick announcements. Our next series is called Why. Our next series is called Why. This upcoming week, there's something called Easter. After Easter, we're going to do a series called Why, and it's just answering your questions. They can be theological. They can be historical. They can be biblical. This series is really the subtitle, Stump the Pastor. Stump the pastor. So easy questions I'm taking. Pastor Mike's taking all the hard questions. That's what I've already divvied up. So fill those out. There are uh, inserts as you walk in, walk out. Put those in the offering pyramid. On the back side of that why page, there's wise council nominations. If you have somebody in mind you prayerfully talked to saying, hey, I want to nominate you for the board who oversees the church, who's in effect my boss, Please write out their names, prayerfully nominate those people. Also take those, place them in the offering pyramid. And then lastly, as Dan inferred, I'm giving you some inspiration, friends, on this next picture. We're having a potluck Thursday night, okay? Cheesy dishes, dishes from my childhood. I think this picture is straight from 1980, okay? This is what we're looking for Thursday night. We're gonna have a fun time. Kids are invited, of course, and we'll take communion afterwards. Just a little bit of inspiration before we get into the atonement series. So the atonement series, we've had four weeks and this is the final week. And ironically, when we started out, we were gonna start with the first one being satisfaction, then go to the substitution example. Ironically, just based on the the availability of preachers during the house gone, uh, we started with Victor, then we went to example. Then last week we did substitution. Now we're gonna talk about satisfaction. We've gone backwards in effect. Four weeks, three weeks ago, three weeks ago, excuse me, Pastor Mike talked about that victory that only Jesus can have. And that victory defeats all of evil. And that's why he was on the cross. Two weeks ago, Sam talked about the example. The example being that Jesus sets an example for all of us to follow in him and carry our own cross. Last week, I went through and talked scripturally just so much. The suffering servant in specific, in specific, in specificity, I don't know what I'm saying. The suffering servant shows, shows that, that he meant to be on that cross to suffer in my place. And then lastly, we have this week, this example of the satisfaction. Now, a quick warning. This is a theological study, okay? This is a little bit off of what we normally get into in church, but I think it will give you some things to chew on, to think through, and to understand why and how Jesus died on that cross so long ago. This theory we're talking this morning is called the Satisfaction Theory of Atonement. Anselm of Canterbury, Anselm of Canterbury, which I can't help but say with a little bit of an accent. So if I get making fun of it, just roll with me. Anselm of Canterbury was a Catholic theologian who used a lot of logic. 
Now, he lived around 1,100 AD, so about 1,000-ish plus years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And for 400 years in the Catholic Church, through this period called the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, his rule of theologicalizing was really the rule that everyone followed. It was based upon logic. Everybody knew their Bible. Everyone understood the basic tenets of Christianity. But Anselm brought up a new idea of saying we could go even deeper into what being a Christian means. And so for 400 years, 400 years, that's a long time, his basis of thought was really what the Catholic Church did until this guy named Martin Luther came on the scene and did the Reformation. Now, the theory of substitution that we chatted on last week in Anselm's day was the only idea that Jesus somehow died on the cross and substituted himself and would in fact paid a ransom for my sins. Paid a ransom for my sins. Now, Anselm of Canterbury, he looked at the substitution theory saying that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And embedded in this theology is Jesus paid the ransom for the sin debt that is owed. The question is, who does Jesus pay the sin debt to? Yeah. That's what Anselm recognized and wrestled with for his theological work that we're going to get into today. Now, this ransom is paid in some people's theology and in Anselm's day to what we call Satan or the devil. And now you should be like, ooh, this is this sermon? Ooh, it's either exciting or you're terrified, right? Both can be true. But it's awkward because why does this debt owed to this tempter, to this evil one named Satan or the devil? Now, taking the book of Job out of the parabolic book for the Jews and just taking that book aside because it's its own book and Pastor Mike already preached on it, Satan or the devil comes in the most awkward times and the most awkward places throughout Scripture. We really do not know very much about him, and the most we get from him is when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. This tempter, it seems, that he has really zero power over Jesus. And in fact, as you go through Scripture, and if you think through the appearances where this tempter comes into play, he never actually has actual power. Think about it just for a moment. The only power that he ever has is when someone succumbs to his temptation. Especially, Anselm recognized, that if God is all-powerful, then Satan is nothing. He's powerless. What we see, and my question to us this morning that Anselm poses in a way, is Satan truly powerless and wants to convince us that he has some sort of authority, some sort of debt that he is owed? The point is, what if there's no debt to be paid at all? So what then? There must be another reason why Jesus then had to die on the cross, Anselm contrived. We have to have some sort of sin taken away and some sort of relationship restored. What we find is that Anselm's theory of atonement, the satisfaction theory, revolves around the concept of honor, honor. And this morning, I want to have a volunteer who will help us illustrate that. And I know now everybody's saying, oh, dear goodness, no. Now, last week, we had our, 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 our great announcer, Mallory, talked about that if you're new to E3, we will pay you $20 $20 at the welcome booth. And she said, Pastor Scott will do that. If you weren't here last week, you have no idea what's going on. And if you're new, we actually don't bribe people to come to church, okay? This is a real $20 bill. There's no trickery involved. This is not Monopoly money, okay? Who wants this $20 bill? I do. There we go. Come on, Lindsay Dernberger, come on up. 
Lindsay just about knocked somebody over as she comes up on stage. Okay, Lindsay, you're gonna hold this $20 bill for me, okay? Everybody, Lindsay Durenberger, Lindsay Durenberger, everybody. There we go. Lindsay now owns this $20 bill, okay? And there's some value to that. What are some things you'd like to buy with your $20 bill? Has to go to Costco, okay. Gas. Gas? Um, That's all that is now, okay? Once you buy gas, it's over. $20 is gone. I also could use another pair of pants. Oh, no other pair of pants. We're just doing the gas, okay? So there's a value in our society that is based upon this $20. Now, what if I told you that in this room, (laughs) she just said a single gallon of gas for those online, Um, probably not too far from the truth. What if I told you, Lindsay, in this room, there is one person whose life you could save and they're needing this $20. Who would you pick? What? <laughs> Wait, I have to save a person? Yes. Any person? Any person. This is why you get paid the big bucks to come up and volunteer this week. Yes, <laughs> good. Um, oh, gosh. I can't, oh, well, do my kids count? Yes. But I have two of them. You can buy both of them. Okay, I'm gonna buy my kids. They're only half size, so they get you know, $10 each. Okay, <laughs> Lindsay picked her kids as well as she should, right? Now, what's interesting is that this same study, I know you're palpitating now. Yes, it's okay, it's okay. What's interesting is they did the same study with random people who come in and say, hey, in this room, and they'd have somebody who they knew, you have to pick one person to save their life with an amount of money that was much greater than $20. And what's interesting is that the question is posed, you have to save one person in this room, and no one ever thought of themselves. Lindsay Durenberger made a very honorable decision. Ladies and gentlemen, round of applause for Lindsay. You may keep your $20 and do whatever. Yes, absolutely. Put it in the offering period if you want after church. Now, here's, here's, here's the point of this. Honor is a tricky thing in our culture, in our society. Honor is a weird, ambiguous thing that when we place someone in a situation such as this where she's trembling, it's a little bit different than buying a gallon of gas or five gallons of gas or a new pair of pants, that our minds are not honor-based society minds. And we're gonna delve into that. But I wanna set the table, and thanks to Lindsay for doing this, because we're gonna come back to that over and over and over and understanding what the concept of honor and shame truly are. More importantly, God's honor and God's shame, and how Jesus restores, by his work on the cross, God's honor here this morning. Another example of honor is shown on the picture on the screen right now. Now, unfortunately, some of you get it, some of you don't. Unfortunately, unfortunately, okay, say your favorite Monty Python line, one, two, three, go. There it is. Those, I said just one line, one line. You are my people, by the way. Some of you have seen this movie, and because we live stream our services, I can't show you the clip, but the clip is fantastic because the Black Knight will not let King Arthur pass, right, friends? And in this clip, if you've not seen the movie, I'm sorry, you should. In this clip, King Arthur goes to cut off his arms and legs and he's, my favorite line is, I'll bite your knees off. <laughs> now, it's not appropriate for a church audience for sure, or at least for you know, the little kids. Don't show this to any three kids. But this idea that this black knight has this idea that none shall pass for no apparent reason is this matter of what? Honor, honor. 
Anselm grew up in this kind of society, a feudal society, where they didn't have a complex economy with dollar bills. They had an economy that was based upon living and then everything else in his life and in everyone's lives around Anselm's time was about honor and dishonor, shame and honor. There are societies and cultures in today's day and age where this is still the norm. Many people who study in any sort of Eastern societies, they are based upon shame and honor. And it's a family name that if you make a trillion dollars, they don't care if you shame the family name. Whereas many of us would say, if my kid would make a trillion dollars, I don't care what they did. Because that means I get a yacht. And I want a yacht. Anselm of Canterbury lives in this world where honor, dishonor are greater than profit and loss, friends. Knights and kings and stuff. What we see is that the natural inclination of humans is to help those we love. Just as Lindsay showed. But the same thought comes to God. We have become attacked by sin, separated from God, but the tempter, Satan, has zero authority and is owed zero debt. In fact, it is God who therefore has to come back and save God's people. If God is a knight, save God's paupers. Just as a knight is bound by an honor code, so God too is based upon that, based on Anselm's work. And that's how he does it through the atonement. Anselm and his protege dialogued over this theory in numerous writings and papers back and forth. But because they knew scripture so well, they would very rarely actually quote scripture. It's very frustrating for those who study this atonement theory. The verse they really hover around comes from Colossians 2, 13 through 15, these verses. Paul writes this, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Go back to verse 14. Go back to verse 14 real quick. I just love this verse. This verse. It says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Most of us in our society owe something to somewhere. We either have a mortgage or a credit card payment, or we might have several credit card payments, or whatever it is, we owe some sort of money to someone. That's our society kind of thrives right now, right? Can you imagine coming through these doors and somebody takes that credit card statement and said, hey, paid off. Hey, mortgage, loan, done. Your mortgage is paid off. Yeah, it'd be amazing. You'd feel free from that debt. You'd start contriving and thinking, where can I use those finances in different ways? And no, this isn't a sermon about finances, but it shows how much greater we need to consider the debt that our sin has and the shame that our sin does to God, our creator. It's this idea and this concept that's so foreign to us in our day and age that we're gonna delve into in a moment. To wrap up Anselm, his argument takes the current form. Human sin dishonors God in such a way that payment is required. It is unfitting for God to forgive sin without punishment or satisfaction. Humanity can't make that satisfaction. So God has a purpose for humanity in him to complete. And so therefore a God-man, Jesus Christ, must be born with the power, the obligation, and the will to make that satisfaction of the debt that we owe. And the death of this God-man, the death of Jesus Christ, outweighs all of our sins. The problem with our 21st century mindset 
It's our economy of salvation mirrors our economy of the present day. I owe some sin. How do I repay it? What can I make this thing go away? We see it not only in our individual lives, but celebrity lives all the more, right? How many celebrities just try and pay off to make sure something bad that's out there just go away? Amen? The point is, is that there's a debt owed, so we have to pay it off to someone. But friends, God is not a capitalist. If you have any questions on that, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Jesus gives a parable here about the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And the parable goes like this. There's several people who the God calls up and he asks to work in his vineyard. Now, it's the vineyard owner who's actually the person calling, but we know that through the parable work that it's God. And so God goes back and he says, hey, you, you need a job? Come on, let's go work. 8 a.m. Four or five hours go by and he looks and says, hey, you need some work? Come on. And then he goes about 5 p.m. right near closing time and says, hey, you need some work over here? Come on. Join me in my work in my vineyard. And all of these people come and they work. And in Jesus' day, if you work, you'd expect to get paid, yes? Same in our day. Same in our day. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. Verse 11. When they received it. Sorry, we're going to go, just kidding. Verse 12. These who are hired the last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have been borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he, the owner, answered to one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give you the one who was hired last, the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? See, friends, for God, True justice involves delight in giving freely more than deserved. God will reward us as he promised. Can you imagine God actually giving us what we deserve? What we actually merit? The fact of the matter is that God, who has all the power, all the glory, and is the owner of all things, gives grace because of God's honor. It has nothing to do with our effort, after all. You may interrupt and say, but Pastor Scott, what about prayer? What about baptism? What about those things in my life that show that I'm, I'm committed to God? Absolutely, those matter. But the full weight that Jesus bears on the cross has nothing to do with my effort. It has all to do with Jesus and what he has done for us. Many churches, they call it that free gift of grace, grace unearned. And many of us make that feel uncomfortable that somehow I have to earn back those sins that I've done. I have to do something to make things right for where I've gone wrong. And yes, that's the work of the Holy Spirit that comes day by day by day by day, transforming you more into Jesus' image, transforming you more into Jesus' likeness. But we have to come to the grips. And hear me on this with the fact that the greatest sinner of all sinners can find justice at the foot of the cross, even at the last moments. My economy of salvation thinks this way, that you have to come and do the right things and say the right prayers and do the right actions to somehow get into the club. 
That's been beaten into me since I was a little kid. But God's economy can look at the person that you think is least likely to get into heaven, and they still can get into heaven in the last moment of their life. I don't care if it's some grandiose celebrity who's the worst villain of all time, or if it's someone you personally know and has wronged you in horrible ways. There is grace for all people at the foot of the cross. The challenge that I have is that when I get into this economy of salvation, I judge everybody else. But just like Lindsay's example showed us, I rarely judge myself with the same metric. I'm either the worst judge of character, and I think I must be a worm, or at best a dog. And dogs are too good, let's be honest, a cat. It was getting too serious in here, okay? I just had to lighten it up a little bit. But seriously, humor is my deflecting. When I judge myself, it's not humorful. It's ripping myself apart. There's no room for me in Jesus' kingdom. There's no room for me in God's grace. Oh, just, I'm the worst of all sinners. Or, I'm Jesus' best friend. How dare I do anything wrong because I just preached a sermon. And somebody came and said, I had a good sermon that Sunday. It didn't go long. It didn't go short. Just right. Both can be true. But the same metric that I tend to judge myself, I need to drop because it is God's grace and God's honor who sets that bar. And friends, I'm here to tell you that God sets the bar awfully low in terms of restoring relationship with him. It's merely to acknowledge the work of Jesus Christ. I love looking at that torture symbol that Pastor Mike mentioned three weeks ago that's so ironic that we worship a torture symbol, a symbol of the death penalty, and yet that symbol of death penalty is the one thing that can give me life. So my question to you this morning, as the worship team comes back on stage, is where have you given God's authority and power over to a lesser being? Where are you being tempted and just listening to that temptation, not saying, get away from me, Satan. Where do you need to repent and say, I've done wrong, but it's not up to me to somehow repay that wrong. It's up to acknowledging that wrong to God and for Jesus to restore God's honor. Where can that sufficiency of Jesus override all our paranoid voices who play games in my head and try to tell us that we're not worthy, that we are not enough? Where is your economy of salvation askew? That you place requirements on yourself or upon others to where you believe God should have someone earn their salvation. Friends, my question to you as we turn back to worship is where does God need to satisfy your atonement.